Greetings one and all, and all in one. Welcome to the final episode of the fifth anthology of the Lucid Dreaming podcast. It's been a small experiment in format from our usual one-to-one, but we hope you enjoyed it so far. The Lucid Dreaming podcast is a space for conversation and reverie with moving image makers, hosted by author and film curator Pamela Cohn. In episode three, we're back like a cochlear octopus. So let's begin. Hello, dreamers. Welcome to the Lucid Dreaming Podcast. I'm Pamela Cohn. I'm super excited to welcome our next duo of artists, one fairly fresh on the scene, one a living legend amongst documentarians, albeit a legend that never stops working. Director Jessica Kingdon, whose debut feature Ascension, which won Best Documentary at the Tribeca Film Festival, and has also made the shortlist for a Best Documentary Oscar nomination, will be joining me in conversation with Kim Longinato. Although their approaches to making nonfiction work are vastly different, the following conversation proved to be both provocative and deeply personal, each maker generously sharing thoughts, opinions, critiques, and working methods with one another. Jessica Kingdon, as already mentioned, is currently facing the work of campaigning for an Academy Award for her first feature. The title of the film is inspired by the poem Ascension, written in 1912 by Jessica's great-grandfather, Shenzhei. Working as both a producer and director, Jessica is the progeny of a Jewish-American father and a Chinese mother. She was named one of 2017's 25 New Faces of Independent Film by Filmmaker Magazine, and is a proud member of the Brooklyn Filmmakers Collective, as well as Brown Girls Doc Mafia. In 2014, Jessica made a fascinating short film about the act of looking, called Looking at Animals, marking a style of distant encounters with the subjects she's observing. In 2017, she made Jessica, a fictional piece about two women who share a name and appearance, but are separated by class, describing the distance that wealth can create and a misguided attempt to belong. Her award-winning short, Commodity City, is an observational contemplation of the world's largest wholesale consumer market in the world, in Yiwu, China. It explores the mundane lives of the vendors who work there. In 2019, focusing on China's exploding new middle class, Jessica directed another short called Routine Island for the Ice Slicer Collection, about the remote island nation of Palau, which has attracted a major influx of tourists from mainland China, and a nine-minute film called It's Coming, directed with partner Nathan Truesdale, about the manufacture of sex dolls made in China for the U.S. market, shown off to horny splendor at a Las Vegas trade show. Even though she is half Chinese, Jessica told Filmmaker Magazine that she never really had any particular interest in filming her mother's country, but her brother who learned Mandarin and moved to China for a few years sparked her interest and obviously, once she finally got there, was inspired by almost everything she saw and experienced. Her work thus far has focused on consumer behavior, consumerism, mass production and factory work. Shooting in carefully composed tableau vivant, one can see the build-up to express a completely different worldview from the one in which this artist was raised, a place she's expressed as at once both foreign and yet familiar. 
British filmmaker Kim Longinato has produced a robust body of work of searingly intimate nonfiction films, an oeuvre she's been building over the past 30 years. The vivid, intensely dramatic stories she tells are centered around strong female entities, women not known, certainly not celebrated, nor even noticed by the societies in which they live and work. Yet in film after film, Longinato crafts a glorious hero's journey from the lives of the most unlikely subjects. Earlier in her career, she often co-directed with another woman. Claire Hunt, Jano Williams, Ziba Mir Hosseini, Florence Aizi, and Ollie Huddleston has been her editing partner in London for almost the entirety of her career. To this day, she essentially works solo, accompanied only by a sound recordist or directorial partner, as she bears fierce and stoic witness to quite painful stories. Born to an Italian father and a Welsh mother, parents she distinctly does not remember fondly, the luminous 70-year-old, you'd swear she was 40, has experienced abuse of her own in her younger years, including a period of living on the streets. However, despite her rough upbringing, she made it to Essex University to study English and European literature, and later followed friend and fellow filmmaker Nick Broomfield to the National Film and Television School, where she studied camera and directing. While still a student, she made a documentary about her boarding school with Dorothea Gazidis called Pride of Place, shown at the 1976 London Film Festival and still a classic of observational cinema. Up until she made 2007's Hold Me Tight, Let Me Go, Kim shot on 16 and 35 millimeter for all of her documentaries, thanks to robust commissioning for feature docs in Great Britain at the time. Her 16 millimeter films include Hidden Faces, shot in Egypt in 1990, four works shot in Japan from 1989 to 1995, Eat the Kimono, The Good Wife of Tokyo, Dream Girls, and Shinjuku Boys. A cinema verite classic, Divorce, Iranian style, was shot in 1998, the camera ensconced right in the middle of the action in an Iranian divorce court. Working with stalwart partner Jana Williams, Kim returned to Japan to make 2000's Gaia Girls on 35mm. Runaway, also shot on 35 in Iran, was released in 2001, as was The Day I Will Never Forget in 2002, about the practice of female genital mutilation in Kenya, with one of the most horrifying off-camera scenes, we hear the audio only, I have ever watched. Then came the fabulous Sisters-in-Law, co-directed with Florence Aizi in 2005, about state prosecutor Vera Nagaza and court president Beatrice Natuba, two towering women who changed the face of justice for other women in their country. The film won the Prix Art et Essai at Cannes that year, with the film's subjects getting a lengthy standing ovation. From 2007 to 2019, Kim, now shooting digitally, made a new film just about every year. The aforementioned Hold Me Tight, Let Me Go, as well as 2008's Rough Aunties, 2010's Pink Saris, 2013's Salma, and Dreamcatcher from 2015. Shooting the Mafia, about Sicilian journalist and photographer Letizia Battaglia, premiered at Sundance in 2019. Letting no grass grow under her feet, Kim is currently shooting a new film in London. I'm so glad you can join me for this invigorating conversation. Let's get started. Welcome to the Lucid Dreaming Podcast, Kim and Jessica. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to have you here. Hi. Hi, Kim. Hi. It's so lovely to see you again. Um, I want to start a little bit with um, 
the very, very sort of beginnings of a film career is always fraught with uncertainty. And when I talk to filmmakers that are working in nonfiction and working in a more experimental hybrid realm, um, that kind of anxiety never goes away. And it feels like it's part and parcel of the energy you bring to every project. And I'm particularly fascinated when there is a female at the helm because the types of films you're making and the way in which you approach them have everything to do with, you know, what you personally are bringing to the experience. So I thought I would start actually with a couple of quotes from both of you where you both talk about this idea of being a stranger in a strange land. And I would love, because you both consistently shoot in cultures not your own, and even if it is your own culture, you're stepping into something that feels very foreign and very unknown, you know, even though it might be right around the corner from you. So, Kim, um, when I uh, interviewed you for Hold Me Tight, Let Me Go in London, like so many years ago, um, you said something in terms of... Um, this very idea. And in the material I've read on Jessica, she, you know, she also expresses similar um, sentiments. So Kim, you said, um, when you're making a film, you have to be very humble. You lose everything. You lose your home, you lose your friends, everything you're used to. And you're in the middle of this world that belongs to other people. You're in a foreign place and it doesn't matter which country, it's a strange place. You have to go by other people's rules. People can boss you around and tell you what to do and be yeah. angry with you and tell you not to film, whatever. You're completely at their mercy. This is something that seems to get more powerful each time. With each film, I seem to have less self-consciousness, less power, and am more open to terrible doubts, I might add. Things I thought were certain in my life become less and less so. Um, and again, Jessica, you express very similar things talking about China. You're, you're half Chinese, but obviously fully American. Um, and you have been shooting in a place that at first seemed very foreign to you and maybe is now a bit more familiar. Um, but that idea of feeling like a stranger in a strange land. I'd like you both to start to talk about why that feeling is so addictive, why that's so important to have that little bit of dissonance perhaps between you and the people you're filming with or the situation you're filming in. So I will leave it up to either one of you to begin. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. Actually, it's interesting for me that you said that quote because I've just seen Ascension. I've just seen Jessica's mm -hmm. film. And I thought it was quite extraordinary. And it came at a really good time for me because I'm on this jury of this uh, Chinese film festival called GZ Docs. And then I watched Jessica's film. And it was like, I love the kind of the irony, the doubt in it, the layers of it which in a lot of the 
Chinese films, which were made by the, Ch the Chinese state, was completely missing. And I, I just think it's, you could do that, you could be living there and you could be of there, but you would, you, if you could still have mm -hmm. that distance. It doesn't matter if you're from that place or not from that place. It's kind of like that you're watching something, but you're, feel, I think a lot of the documentary filmmakers I know have always felt like outsiders anyway. I think that's why we love getting, going into other people's lives. I don't know about um, Jessica, because I don't know you, Jessica, but the feeling I very much got from Ascension, which I thought was quite extraordinary, it made me very disturbed, but also incredibly mm -hmm. sad, particularly because I'd just seen these amazing films about all the sacrifices that went into making the Republic of China and, um, you know, the, the sort of joyfulness of these young people going to fight in the war, the Pacific War. And then you see this film and there was a bit where it was about um, 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 teaching butlers. And they said, this is like Downton Abbey. And I thought, God, Downton Abbey is about a, a terrible time and a terrible place. And it's something that we've so moved on from. It's so the past. And that you're looking back on that and you're, you're measuring how far the, the cup and the plate have to go and you're measuring the glasses. And I mean, it's kind of a madness. I'm thinking, oh, is this what it's come to now? Is it come that people are hiring these butlers and trying to live in Downton Abbey? It, the, the whole thing, at times it was almost unbearable to watch. But I felt I'm so glad this film's been made because there's so many other films which don't have that distance and don't have... It is a sense of irony and it's a sense of, of playfulness as well, but also a sense of kind of, um, you know, like in the factories when you were watching these people working and you really watch them and you think, my God, that's your life, doing this repair, the thing again and again and, and the, you know, insides of chickens and things, you know, you've got that and then you've got people with too much money and people with not enough money. And it's all there in one film. Sorry, I didn't mean to talk about your film, Jessica. But anyway, I just watched it last night. And I just wondered if um, if you'd shown it to um, any Chinese people that live in China, what, what their attitudes would be to it, what what it would be like watching that of your, of your own community. But just in quick answer to what you said about um, the pain of, I think when I talked to you, I just made um, Hold mm -hmm. Me Tight, Let Me Go. And that was a particularly painful film to make because I had, I had a, a, I'd had a son, and then I didn't keep the son. The son was with the father, and I always thought because I went to boarding school at a very young age and never missed my parents. I always thought, I sort of assumed stupidly that children didn't really mind mm. where they were, where they grew up, or whether they had parents or not parents with them. And what was so striking in the in the school that I was filming in was all the children, even if they'd been really badly abused, they all wanted their parents. And that was a terrible shock. It was like, oh, I've missed something. I've made assumptions. I've maybe done terrible things. I've let people down. It was that thing that I was obviously in a very bad space when I mm -hmm. met you. And I hadn't been able to forgive myself or um, kind of get through it because I, it was still quite raw, mm -hmm. I suppose. Mm -hmm. What this is bringing up for me is thinking about, I guess, the value of studying um, this sort of cross-cultural understanding and what it can bring up for an artist or a filmmaker. So I'm thinking about 
Chinese artists like Chloe Zhao, who mm -hmm. came to the States and made Nomadland um, and how that was incredibly successful. I think that part of it was having that cultural difference that allows you to appreciate the everyday or the mundane that is right in front of us that we um, that we take for granted and don't see through this certain lens. So, um, I mean, sometimes I wonder if I had been born in China, um, would I have made this film? I Maybe I would have made the same version, but in America. And what would that have looked like? Mm. So, um, and then I think about this writer, this Chinese writer I love, Yun Li, who she wrote The Vagrants. And um, she moved to Iowa and was, I think, studying immunology, but because she was in the Iowa Writing School um, at Orbit, she got into creative writing that way and started writing fiction in English. But she said, and she says that she never would have written the type of fiction that she wrote in Chinese, mm -hmm. even though she was writing about China, because something about being in another language freed her up from her own um, associations of her own culture. So I think there is something to be said about um, being thrown out of your comfort element and being put in a place where you have to start from scratch in terms of understanding the world around you that allows you to maybe rebuild a new world. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the people in China who have seen the film, it's been interesting because, well, firstly, some Chinese filmmakers who I showed the film to, I've heard them say, oh, like a filmmaker in China wouldn't necessarily make this. You can tell it's, it, there's a foreign gaze to it because mm -hmm. there are scenes that look kind of every day, like even that river scene at the end of the young people and the old people swimming in the river. Um, something like that is just like a very mundane scene, but just the way that I was paying attention to it looked like I was seeing it for the first time. I think it's something about seeing the world anew when you travel and when you go to a foreign place and something about this newness, um, this freshness gives you the uh, ability to have possibilities in terms of how you understand something. So yeah, the Chinese filmmakers were saying, um, you know, that, but also, that they felt like I should in Ascension showed them a side to China they hadn't seen before, which makes perfect sense because if I made this film in the States and showed it to an American audience or in the UK and showed it to a British audience, people would probably say the same thing that I showed a side to that society that they haven't seen before since not everyone in China has been to a factory or to a butler school or to a manor school. Um, a lot of these, even though they're Chinese, they're niche places that not everyone's gonna see. So, cause I was really trying to do a survey of like different classes and different um, modes of production and marketing. So. That worked really, really well. I mean, the thing about showing your t the top eight teeth and <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you smile and how hard to put your hand. But yeah, I wonder about this though, Jessica, I think it's, there obviously is a, a, there's obviously a lot of sense in that. I absolutely agree with everything you've said, but I think also by training your sights on something in great detail, it, this whole idea of the foreign gaze or the outsider's gaze, I think just by doing that, like in the school I was um, filming in, 
was that that um, Pamela just mentioned. It was a school for disturbed kids, and when the kids acted up, they weren't punished. Whereas the school I went for, even if you didn't act up, if you were trying desperately hard to be good, you were still punished and you never really knew why. So it was like a real culture shock just being in the school. And I think in our own in our own streets, there'd be a house you could go into. I think you said that a little bit, Pamela, that you would meet people in that in that road, in that house, and, and it would be a new world for you. So I think the whole thing of being a, a filmmaker is whatever you film, you're an outsider. And and I think by doing that, you are showing people from from that street or that house a different side, something, because it's a real privilege what we do. We can be super nosy and we can spend ages and really ask things and, and look at things that we never would have been able to mm. ask before. Because somehow being making a film kind of, oh, that's what Jessica's doing. She's making a film, that's fine. You know, she can ask whatever she wants. It kind of gives her, a, a, a it gives you a sort of immunity. And I, I see that when people make films about their parents, you know, they can say, mom, you know, what was it like living with dad? Something you would never ask, but because you're making a film, you're sort of in one way, the closest thing to you, your father or your mother, but you're one step removed and so you can ask these questions that you'd never be able to ask normally. So it's a very complicated thing because often people, they don't say it so much to me anymore, but at the beginning, oh, you're an outsider. How can you, you know, what, why are you making a film in Japan, for example? But, you know, it's the pe people often I'm filming and I'm drawn to are people who feel outsiders. So for them, it was really nice to have these kind of rather scruffy people who weren't part of this whole showing your eight teeth and how, how you know, you were going to bow and how, how you know, could sort of break the rules. And that would ma make them able to break the rules as mm -hmm. well. I love the bit about hugging, how, you know, <laughs> how much you have to wait for someone to all that stuff. You can just throw that away and completely be yourself. First of all, I want to establish, do you realise why I sent you out of Randall's today? Yes. For being bolstery and rude. You realise that swearing is one of the things we're trying to teach you not to do? Yes. And to be kind to other people. I mean, it was unnecessary to get angry then. You realise that? Yes. So in future, I would like you, one, to learn not to swear. Two, not to be rude to your friends. And most of all, to learn to be tolerant. Because that's another thing we teach in this school. Do you understand that? Yes. Okay, so I'll expect an improvement in the future. Mm -hmm. All right. It's such a, I mean, we could talk for hours about this whole thing about outsider, insider, you know, and you can say, oh, it's obviously a woman's gaze. But then you can see Lucas Moodison's film, uh, Fucking Armal, I don't know if you've seen it. Such a beautiful, tender film about two women, two girls in school in this town, Armal. I think it's called Show Me Love in mm -hmm. America. But, um, and I remember watching it with my friend and thinking, oh, this is definitely made by a woman. This is so brilliant, the way he's done it, the gentleness of it, you know. So I think it's something to explore there. It's not, there's, there's no one way of looking at it, really. When I'm shooting as well, particularly for Ascension, thinking about um, being an outsider, what I, a lot of what I was trying to keep in mind as well are the ways that um, the culture would resonate unexpectedly with my own culture in the States. So even though it seemed very foreign, I was trying to channel this feeling of it as a kind of mirror itself too. Because I think in the Western world, a lot of these types of rules are still 
prevalent, but they're just more hidden and more invisible. And part of why I was drawn to it in China is because it, um, a lot of these questions that I was grappling with are magnified there. What were the questions? That you, um, that you I was thinking about the questions about the paradox of progress, particularly looking at economic growth and how economic growth has, in China, it's been such a condensed time frame for uh, a culture that's been lifted out of poverty, hundreds of millions of people, and there's a new middle class now. And what does this middle, this new middle class uh, and this new Chinese dream of where everyone can ostensibly have a comfortable life, how does that change people's values of and meanings in terms of how we make meaning in life? That was what the questions that I was grappling with. And I think that in China, a, a lot of that is it comes into sharper relief. So mm. it was really a study of materialism and consumer culture that of course is here in the West. And that's why a lot of the things in China you see um, like the Butler school, you know, they're getting it from the West and trying to emulate that. Um, yeah. Which is such an enormous irony, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yes. It's the worst, it's the worst of worst possible thing. Yes. I mean, I've kept thinking a lot about progress and destruction of the planet as well, that, you know, that, which I think is why you had that shot near the end of, you know, just sort of bare earth and, and just the, the, this whole idea of, of trying to encourage people to consume, whereas now most of us are trying to think we've got to learn to consume less. That, you know, but then who are we to say you must learn to consume more because you know, they've jumped that stage that we've gone through and we're now all aware of how we're destroying the planet. So it's, 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 there's so many things in that film. I mean, it was like, oh God, you know. In talking about gays though, I mean, it's so interesting to watch your works particularly um, side by side, you know, not in a sort of bid to do this sort of facile compare and contrast, but, you know, Jessica, you talk about this distanced encounter, you know, like in your film, looking at animals, for instance, 2017. They really dug deep. <laughs> uh, well, you know, but this this way in which you are really looking at a macro um, level of things, whereas Kim's work, you know, traditionally, um, and maybe because, Kim, you shot on 16 and 35, you know, for so long, you know, just in terms of that thinking about that in shooting observational documentary. I, I think Hold Me Tight, Let Me Go was the first film where you shot digitally, if I'm not mistaken, but- That's absolutely right, yeah. You really hone in. You are much more, your worlds, you invite us into your worlds through one individual or one institution or one very specific story, let's say. Um, and there is that arc of, of the hero's journey, you know, in so many of them, these extraordinary but unknown, um, obscure, we might say people. And it's just an interest. I mean, Jessica, you're just so much at the beginning of what is promising to be an extraordinary career, but I would love for you also to talk about the ways in which you gravitate, you know, as an individual as to what kind of stories you tell and how you want to tell them. Because your approaches are so 
superficially distant, but in trying to think about these things and the ways in which filmmaking has changed, for instance, and the notion of making documentary um, specifically, which Kim, you've sort of been a maverick almost your whole entire career regarding that. Um, but I know when you were coming up and also in the, I would say early to mid 2000s, documentary was sort of um, unpacked and called many things, given many different labels. I think in order for documentarians, if you will, um, to be able to blow the lid off of this kind of traditional way of approaching nonfiction. So I would love for both of you to talk about that from your very particular viewpoints in your careers, but also in your lives. I'll just quickly say, um, I'm, you know, at the beginning of my career, I've just finished my first feature. Mm -hmm. And so Kim, it's really um, interesting and inspiring to talk with you to see someone who's had such a long and prolific career with all of the films that you've made. And I'm curious, since there is this theme, of course, of gender and women in your films, I'm curious if early on in your career, um, if you kind of knew this was a path that you were gonna be going down or if it kind of just kept coming back to you. And sorry, Pamela, if I just answered your question with a That's different question. That's perfectly <laughs> fine. <laughs> I don't mind at all. I think the first two films I made were very much um, autobiographical films because the first one was about my boarding school and it was a kind of revenge about, against this place that I think had really kind of, well, was a very damaging, mm -hmm. a very unloving, a very difficult place and gave me a lot of um, assumptions that I, that I had to keep unpicking all the way through my life, which was, you know, I mean, some of them I've still got. I don't want a family, you know, I don't want to, I never really wanted to be a parent, those sort of things. But um, just the sense that it would be very difficult to have love in a school, that schools were sort of angry, um, punitive places, and actually then making a film in a school which was very loving and very forgiving. And so that the first one was my boarding school, and the second one was about homeless people, because I had actually, when I ran away from home, I was living on the streets for a bit. And that, that I think you never really lose that feeling. I mean, in a way, it's quite a good feeling because I always think I'm so lucky I've got a place to live. I've got a bed, you know, you, you never lose. But then you're on the streets and you notice everybody that lives on the streets and you, you, you know, you feel this terrible mm. thing of how can you walk past? You know, it's that thing, really. But um, in answer to your question, the, the films that I've chosen have always been, they've just been stories that I've wanted to tell because I always wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to write stories and this was like the second best thing really because I discovered I wasn't going to be a novelist. But um, I just wanted to tell these stories and I, I, I don't like films about victims. I've yes. seen a film called Fire Dahi. Uh, have you seen it? It's made in, in and I, I, this is the personal response to it. I really, really, really didn't like it. it I, I find it very disturbing that somebody would make a film like that that it was just like looking at people and the people were just, um, you know, you thought, oh, they're victims. And I thought they were set up to be victims. Whereas, um, you know, and I felt, if you're making films, for me, I want to make films about change, about people who are, are transforming themselves or, or struggling or fighting. And it's funny because when I watched Ascension, 
I thought, yes, but there's this very special, strange film that actually people, there aren't victims, but it's looking and it gives you enough distance that you don't, you you make all these connections in your mind. You make it, you make all these, it, it was such a brilliant experience because I was thinking about things. I was putting things into context all the time. And the way the film was made, it let me do that. It was also very be beautiful mm -hmm. to watch. And very sort of hypnotic. I, I hope in that film too, people can kind of not see the people in it as victims, but implicate ourselves. I didn't at all. Yeah. I didn't absolutely at all see them as victims. Because also, because it wasn't just, if it had been two hours just on a, um, a conveyor belt in a factory, and just these women doing that, then you would have done. You would have thought, oh God, these poor women. I've got, I watched them for two hours and they're absolutely exhausted. But no, I felt this Jessica person making the film and I thought god this is so witty this is so clever this is so thoughtful this is so imaginative it was that it was the joy of watching a piece of work which actually was making all these connections between things and making you look at this culture and I think for me particularly because I'd been watching all these political films about you know not the second world war the pacific war you know it was all everything was it had different names you know the American War was the Vietnam War, you know, everything was, you know, and that was really good to watch things differently. But your films did that, watch them differently. But there was this sense of playfulness, this irony, and this, um, mm. and it was very emotional at times. So there's, I don't want to make us say I don't like films where people are victims, because, you know, there's, there's all sorts of different ways of doing it, really, you know, and I don't think your film for a second was people as victims. It was people, it was this web of showing you and making you question all the things you said, consumerism, what people, what happiness is, you know, and and the only the time I got really upset was what was when those people were eating that food, and I thought, oh for goodness sake, <laughs> you know, and you have to eat the bottom of the sweet <laughs> first, and you know, and oh when yes the dessert, and when she said mm -hmm. you've got to get used to being humiliated. You know, you've got to accept being humiliated. And I thought that goes against everything the revolution stood for, you know, which was to give dignity to people. So because that's in, at every turn, you're, you're questioning and seeing things differently. And I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And that was what was missing for me and Fatidahi. It was just kind of, these people's lives are messed up. They can't leave. And isn't it terrible? And I'm going to go back to Los Angeles and um, turn my microwave on. It was that sort of thing, I felt. But I'm, I'm Pamela, you probably disagree, but I had a very, very strong reaction to it and I thought what you know I thought interesting because I thought that it was more about the spirituality of the place and kind of invoking a certain tone and because she's also from Ethiopia as well I know originally but it's like what my yoga teacher said in my yoga um, class she said oh India's a very spiritual place and I thought actually it's a really tough place you know it's very spiritual if you go from Tottenham and have a a, you know, a fortnight in India somewhere and you chant and you do meditation and you do your yoga. But actually, it's mm -hmm. a really tough place for a woman particularly mm -hmm. to live in these villages, you know. So I, I, I don't, I don't, I didn't get it was a spiritual place. I get it was somewhere where mm -hmm. people were really hurting. Well, I just wanted to go back quickly to what you were saying about um, how you wanted to be a novelist at first. I, I also um, wanted to, to write fiction and and I, I found that writing was too, um, if I'm not kind of beholden to other people and I don't have 
external structure around me, it's difficult to be self-motivated. And I found that in film, because there's a community around you, because there's more at stake in a way, um, it was just easier for me to get myself to go out and do it. I totally agree with you. I mean, Frankie, who you just met, who sorted out the computer for me, I've been work making a film with him for the last two years. And actually, I love being in a team. I love sharing it with somebody. It's a very, Pamela, all credit to you, it's a very, very lonely, difficult, hard thing to write. I think mm -hmm. writing is the hardest thing in the world. And you don't have somebody say, oh, can you help me to the computer? Or, oh, God, wasn't today awful? They didn't turn up. Or we were treated so badly. Or they wouldn't let us mm -hmm. film. And you've got, you've got that when you're making a film. But you don't... You did, did you, you had, I noticed on the end of yours, you had different people doing, I know you did the sound, the camera, and also the editing, but you also had a little team around you. Yeah, I had people with me. So, but I was thinking about something that Frederick Wiseman has said about the role of the documentarian, where um, I think he said something about thinking that it's about being able to recognize these moments or interactions between people and recognize their value and give them the privilege of being on a screen. And when it's done right, it's done at the height of what a great novelist could done. But we can't take credit for that. We can't say that we wrote that line of dialogue, but the talent lies in being able to recognize it Absolutely. as being valuable. And Kim, I think in your films that I've seen, I definitely felt that it had this novelistic quality of the characters that are in there. I saw, um, I loved to divorce Iranian style. It's a brilliant and film. And Pink Saris. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. They, the characters, all of the the pathos and the the humanity in it. Um, yeah, just it it felt it had similar qualities, like novelistic qualities. Can you talk then about your in in the kind of material you make and the way you create? Um, you did bring up the editing um, process, which you, you know, you're both actively involved in in various different ways. I mean, Kim, you've always, I don't know if you're still partnering, partnering with Ollie, if he's your standby guy, you know, but, yeah. but the, the way in which, you know, that team as well, you know, sort of informs the way in which you can expand even further upon the material that you got, because a lot of times it, it is a big surprise, even though you've set yourselves up to try and capture something. Um, and in, in, in your work so far, thus far, Jessica, I just, I see a, a much more in a way studied approach, um, a way in which the frame itself, you know, and what that frame can hold, um, for me, at least that's where I think you're beginning and, and whether that's part of your research process, um, is, is constantly referencing, referencing the, the gaze through that lens um, to tell a much, much bigger story um, versus Kim's way of telling a huge story, again, through a very defined experience. Um, and if you could talk a little bit about that process, once you've collected all your material, um, once you feel satisfied, you know, that you've captured as much of what you desired as possible, you know, what happens then? I mean, what kind of reckoning um, sort of occurs in the edit room um, and um, that final, you know, vision you might have of the finished product, you know, what you want it to feel like, look like, the pace of it, the tone of it. 
Um, it's a very, um, you know, unique way to look at your own material before anybody else has, has seen it. I think in a way, the editing, I, I would never think of, of filmmakers as artists. I think we're craftspeople. We, we're, we're there with our equipment and we get dirty and we're, you know, we're filming. And, and the people that are, I think in, in this, when you make observational films, I think mm-hmm. Jessica's is a very different matter because I got the sense of somebody who was creating a thing, you know, that the whole, the editing made the whole thing hang together and it was everything reverberated away from something else. It was what came before and what came after that made it work. So it's a very different thing than if you're in a very small story and you're following it through and you're, you're telling the story all the way through. I think it's different. It's, it, you know, just a different in, in, in the way you do it. Um, and I think the editor's the person that kind of has the artistry to make it flow and have the rhythm and 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 it's it's a kind of like the editing's the sort of um, emotion of a film. It's the heartbeat of a film. It's how it's like uh, somebody composing a piece of music. I think in in a way that you know me and Frankie when we're out with, with these two people with our equipment we go mm-hmm. out and it's a job. It's a day's work in a way. You know, lugging the equipment out and, and making the film and. And actually having to sort of um, keep ourselves going when you get... And, you know, I, I don't remember saying all that to you, um, Pamela, but it is, you're constantly being knocked back, you're constantly being disappointed, you're constantly being made to feel unwelcome or, um, you know, or you're disappointed with how the day's gone or, you know. And so the team is... I think the teams that you work with are, are lifelong. Mm. They're probably your closest friends, you know, because... And that's why it's so nice to have long collaborations with people because you can actually then you can know what that other person's thinking and, and you, you can actually make decisions mm-hmm. between you without even knowing that you're doing that. So I would be curious to know about the editing process of Jessica's film because it was so complex and, and balanced and and nuanced and so complicated really I thought you know but it worked I never felt oh this is complicated I thought oh god they're giving me this now to look at oh and now this I was always very aware of Jessica somehow this person saying okay can you just start (laughs) to relax a little bit have a look at this I love that it's so true because I feel like even though the film's not a personal film there is something that's strangely personal about it where you kind of feel my hand in it the whole time very personal Jessica I'm sorry to disappoint you but it feels a very personal because I, mm-hmm. I actually do think we make yes. the films that reflect who we are. And I th- I got a real sense of somebody that was quite transgressive, quite playful, and actually clear-sighted. <laughs> and that definitely came through. And it was I was constantly being knocked off balance and thought, oh, okay, yeah, okay. I love I love that it worked for you. I like the transgressive and, and playfulness, because I think that's that's there. And the editing was really an act of faith because when I had all of this footage, there's no way that you can know that it's going to work. And especially with this film, since I didn't have any one location or one character or one plot line to hang my hat on, the whole film was really an experience, is, is meant to be experienced. And so it was quite difficult to articulate what it was I was even looking for. So that's why the entire time, the the act of editing itself is is just an act of faith that there will be something that comes out of this. And I knew that I could have easily failed, but um, somehow I ended up pulling it off, I guess. 
But I basically, in terms of how it worked, um, I would just edit sequences out of the different scenes and prioritize, you know, knowing which kinds of sequences I was going to use. In some ways, not making a documentary in this conventional way made it easier because I didn't, I wasn't beholden to a certain story and the scenes were modular. I could move them around. I could mix and match. I could be really playful in that way. So it gave, it gave me a lot of freedom and space, but in some ways that freedom and space could also be sort of oppressive because it meant that all of the decision was on me to make sure I knew why exactly that one scene is coming after this other one since it's not happening sequentially. So there had to be an internal logic that I was constantly questioning over and over to, to make sure that it worked. With your film, I constantly felt myself identifying with people and feeling for them, like the young women in the factory when they're punching in their cards and the women being told that you've got to um, put up with being humiliated. And I, because you look at people's faces and, and you, you're close to them and you watch them. So I felt, I felt for them and I felt with them. And I, you know, so I didn't feel detached at all. And I think that's another reason why it worked for me. And so then when you get the people at the dinner table with the, you know, all that posh food, um, that they were the first people that I really hadn't liked, you know, that I, oh God, the people being slapped as well. I mean, there's some very amazing scenes in it. That was a brutal scene. Only later after making the film did I realize that the theme of gender was coming up for me a lot. Mm -hmm. And in the manor school, you see the women who are being trained to use their bodies um, to perform a kind of business etiquette. And in the bodyguard school, you see the men also using their bodies to be trained. But in this case, it's about protecting wealth because their ideal jobs are to protect a wealthy individual. Absolutely. You're standing in the wrong place. You're not yeah. standing in front of your body, all that. I thought it was really about, te and also teaching the women to be very submissive and how you could, I mean, to, down to how you had to put, how how high to lift your hand i thought because what was lovely about it, it was very funny mm -hmm. but also it was apps it was so dark yeah. you know so i think that's i mean there's so many ways in which the, the film worked and i think humor is really important hopefully it's a humor where we're not laughing at the people we're laughing at the idea that we live in a system that this kind of um etiquette has to exist that's so important no we're laughing at we're laughing out of anger. It's so good to, when an audience can laugh at something. It gives you power. So you're laughing with the women and thinking, you know, what they're saying to you is ridiculous. It's an angry laugh. It's a kind of, it's a powerful laugh. You know, it's a difference. It's completely different to laughing at people. It's laughing with them at this horrible 
sort of training they're having to undergo, you know, down to how, how high you can raise your arm and how much, how you have to wait for people to hug you and then. And I related to that, the, the whole idea of you have to bear the hug because sometimes I don't like hugging people actually. And, but it's a polite thing to do. And uh, <laughs> I, I related to that very much. <laughs> One of my favorite things to do when seeing the film with a live audience is during that section to see how many people actually go and do the body motions of raising your hand, nodding your head, smiling. And a, a fair number of people do try to emulate it. Yes. After um, building out the core scenes, and then after we got rejected from our first festival, then I went and kind of did more editing. And in that pass, I actually freed myself up even more to lean into those dreamlike associations and to have shots that didn't always have an explicit mm -hmm. meaning, but kind of made sense in some way that I couldn't articulate. I allowed more of that to come out afterwards, after I had the overall structure of ascension in the movie. And I think that really made it better. So, and I wanted to ask you too about the strictures as well of being a professional filmmaker and and having this notion that you know project after project comes and how you grow as an artist or as Kim expresses it a craftsperson um how that growth keeps happening um and and using those limitations or those strictures to to keep your head down and keep making good films. But do you desire to sort of hone in more now? Do you have a a documentarian, I I guess, um, urge or or impulse um, to to get close? Um, because thus far, it's been again this sort of not detached observation at all. There's nothing detached about it, but it is. It is distant and you're also offering no commentary except your audiovisual frames, let's say. Um, and I'm just kind of wondering in, in, in terms of evolution, in terms of, you know, the desire to sort of expand your repertoire, where you're sitting with that right now. Um, obviously, you're very ensconced in what's happening with this film. Maybe that's a little bit of an unfair question, but... No, it's not unfair at all. I think what, what was interesting for me about um, shooting the Mafia was how close to home it felt very, very quickly um, because um, it became really clear what we wanted to do, which was we wanted to show Leticia, the, the photographer, who, whose work was about love. It was the way she takes her photographs is very loving and you're, you identify with people in her photographs immediately and also she's had loads of lovers. I think she said nearly 50. And so, um, and she's a, a woman who's always lived outside, you know, broken all the rules of her culture after she uh, left her children when she was 40 and started to be a photographer. And then the culture that she was working in and the whole mafia culture. And the more I went into the mafia culture and started exploring it, the closer it seemed to the culture that I'd grown up in with my father, who had a, a completely mafia-like take on the world, which is that you have a hierarchy of people. There's the people at the top, which are men, and usually um, powerful, rich men. And in my father's case, the, the men that he um, idealized were Aryan men, you know, North European men, German men, 
and um, that you know that then you went down, down, down. Women, homosexual people, um, black people, Jewish people. There was this whole list, and and there's a, a mafia um, man, Luciano Ligio, in the f film who actually says, "Oh, these we killed these men. They weren't proper men. They were they were you know they'd been cuckolded by their wives, or they were." Um, homosexual or you know this this idea that you could do whatever you wanted to do to people because you had you were special people you were the chosen people and so therefore you could do whatever you wanted to which we we see played out all over the world all the time it's still happening you know we, we watch it that a, a group of people think they're better and so therefore they can do terrible things and that film was so hard to make because the more I discovered about the mafia and the more I thought, God, you know, The Godfather and all those mafia films, and they show the mafia as being these sort of rather elegant men in suits, rather beautiful Al Pacino type characters. And yet they're men that went into garages and shot working people in the back of the head, you know, when they were, when they were cleaning the car, you know, a mechanic, or they killed children, or they, they tortured children and buried them in pits. And you sort of think, my God, is this the mafia that... I've been watching all films about all my childhood and they've been sort of venerated and and so we wanted to turn it around and, and sort of look at Leticia and say the bravery to stand up and take those photos knowing that you could be killed at any time and also um, you know Falcone the, the magistrates that stood up against the mafia and knew that they were going to be killed and said oh I'm going to be killed but there'll be other magistrates that come after me you know that, that I'm going to do what I the, what I can for a better society that that those people have never been celebrated. I think you've got, you know, in the mafia films, it was always mafia shooting each other, and they were rather brave, and you never really felt for the people they'd killed. Whereas in Leticia's work, you see that somebody's killed, and then children have to walk past the bodies on their way to church or to school, and that people have to put them in coffins, and doctors have to come and try and save their lives, and the, mm. the brutalization of the whole society, mm. really, by this mafia culture so I think that was what I wanted that film to say but it was a really difficult film to make for Ollie and I the editor it was yeah. a very painful film I think Ollie nearly sort of cracked up over it because we kept saying look the mafia did this we've got to have this in no we've got to have Leticia in the center it was like this this thing you know we can't we can't go on about the children they killed it would be too upsetting for people to watch we've mm. got to you know, we've got mm. to temper everything. So that's why it was hard. But, you know, my dad, it was like, and it sort of answered those questions that people that think like that, they're really, you know, our family was such an unhappy place to grow up. It was such a horrible, unloving place to grow up. And, you know, you think if if you believe those things, you, you become really unhappy people. You know, that your, your life is full of violence and, and hate and and how can you have a proper life if you have those kind of mentalities so that it felt like a felt like a sort of revenge film against my dad in a way and all people like him and also Leticia saying things like you know I take these photographs and you know I've none nobody everyone's disappointed me my children are disappointed my family my lovers I've let everyone down because I always put my work first and I loved her for saying that because I thought it's great if you can have a woman saying that because they very rarely do. When do you know that you're going to commit to making a documentary? Is it like you get an idea and then you say, oh, I'm definitely making this? Or do you start shooting and see if it works out? No, it's always 
at the because you know usually I have to go somewhere like Japan or go meet Leticia and it's right at the beginning I think there this is a story like you know the novels we wanted to write Jessica I want to tell this story this is a story I want to tell and I'll do anything to tell it it'll be the most important thing in my life for the for while I'm making it Jessica what about what about that that idea of of your your own trajectory um in terms of of new challenges you know that you're I mean in Kim's career, I think, has been so prolific and so long because of that desire to self-challenge, you know, over and over and over again. Um, and, and the fear, overcoming the, the fear, you know, of, of diving in. Um, any thoughts on that? I think I had to trick myself in a way into making Ascension because otherwise it would have felt too big mm. and too overwhelming to make something of this scale. And initially I was actually conceiving of it as a as a series of short films just as a trilogy but as it snowballed and got bigger and the ideas got bigger I just kept going down that path and something that helped me actually that as I was making it that a friend um she gave me this advice she said just pretend you're making a b movie <laughs> meaning like don't put too much pressure on it just get the thing done and that was what allowed me to finish it. Just having this mentality of, I'm just gonna make this B movie that maybe few people will watch. And, but I, st I feel this pressure now, you know, doing this next one. Um, and I've heard another filmmaker say this, that it doesn't get easier after the first one or the second one. I don't know, Kim, if you feel like that's true or not. No, it gets, it's, it's, it's always terrifying. I, I remember the last one I did, I wrote a little note by the, the, the phone because it was going to, you know, going out of the house and leaving everything and, and saying, you're, st you know, welcome back, you survived. It's like this sense that it's not, you're not going to die, even if it's a terrible mistake and a failure, you're still going to come back and you're going to mm. be yourself and you're going to have your friends and mm. hopefully have a place to live. And, you know, <laughs> you know, that it, it doesn't kill you, but it feels like it's killing you. It feels like that if it didn't work, you'd it'd be the most awful thing you can imagine and you'd die. But it, you don't, you survive, you know. Yeah, just the assurance that if you go out and you make it and you failed, that's okay. And that's part of the process. And so I do, in terms of ideas for next films, um, it's been kind of brewing in the back of my mind, but I think part of doing press for this film has sort of blocked me from being able to fully engage. But I keep coming back to this, uh, an idea about, um, it, it will also be a conceptual film and, instead of you were asking if I was interested in maybe like one character or going in mm -hmm. deeper into one place or person, but I, I'm almost thinking the opposite mm -hmm. way where um, what I'm feeling drawn towards is the idea of a, a, almost a wordless symphony about um, humanity's relationship to the planet and um, our resource extraction and big agriculture it felt like that at the end of Ascension. I felt that mm -hmm. was coming through at the end. I felt that yeah. very strongly. Originally, Ascension, I was thinking about it as being more about waste and environmental devastation. But as I was making the film, the thing that was more interesting about this particular film became more, like I said, this study of upward mobility and consumerism and the people behind it. But for this next project, um, I'm not sure, maybe it'll go in the opposite direction. I think it's just um, 
kind of letting it be what it wants to be. Mm-hmm. But the only way to find out is if you go and take that first step and start shooting or whatever it is. And that's the, can be the most terrifying. It is terrifying, Jessica. But I mean, the brilliant thing is you've pulled it off so well. You know you can do it. And you know, I mean, I, I have no fear for you. I think it's going to be fine. It's going to be great. And all those things are there, the seeds of all those things about the devastation and the destruction. It's like the next yeah. step, you know, it's like. It's just very interesting just in terms of, of finding your your voice, you know, and that, and that, as I can say for myself too, as a writer wanting to try different forms, there is a way in which you can grow to a certain extent, but we all also have our own, you know, ways, very particular ways of seeing the world and interpreting that world. Um, I want to thank you both very, very much for for being with me in, during this hour. It's been actually really lovely to listen to both of you talk to one another as well. That's a treat. It's a real treat. It's been a treat for me. Such a treat for me. I mean, particularly after seeing such a powerful film and then being able to chat with the maker was such a treat. Yeah, it's really an honor to talk to you who's made this incredible body of work. And I can only hope to have a semblance of that kind of career. (laughs) That is all for this anthology, listeners. We'll return in the near future with more Minds to Meet. Lucid Dreaming is a production of Lono Studio, hosted by Pamela Cohn. If this is your first time listening, subscribe, like, share, post it wherever you post things, except a letterbox. Goodbye, dreamers.